You're listening to The Electables, hosted by Adrian Elrod and Doug Thornell. Each week, The Electables gives you an insider's take on all the moves, spin, and buzz in the campaigns of Democrats fighting to win the party's nomination and beat Donald Trump in 2020. This week's special guest is Brian Fallon. The Electables airs next. Welcome to The Electables. I'm Doug Thornell, and I'm joined by uh, my partners in crime here, Adrian Elrod and Brian Fallon, two of the top strategists in the business. And we're going to break down all the news of the week and give you an insider's take on what's happened in this race. So I figured we'd start off with just going over who's in and who's out right now. We've got Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, uh, Julian Castro is in. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard, uh, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard's in. Uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand is in. Congressman John Delaney. Pete Buttigieg, uh, former mayor of uh, uh, South Bend, Indiana. And uh, Andrew Yang, a businessman. So we thought would what would be a good place to start is taking you behind the scenes on the art of the rollout. Each one of these candidates have uh, spent a lot of time, their teams have spent a lot of time figuring out how they were going to actually announce their candidacy. And I thought the best person to start this conversation was, uh, was, was Adrian Elrod, who was a top staffer on Hillary Clinton's campaign, was at the DCCC and a whole bunch of different places. But Adrian, let's start with you. What, are, what, are, what goes through the campaign's mind when they're sort of game planning out a rollout? What's the objective? Well, I think this cycle, 2020, is far different than the 2016 cycle um, because you have, number one, so many different candidates running. Brian Fallon is sitting right next to me um, with his nice headphones on. And I were both on Hillary Clinton's campaign, and we were both part of the rollout for her candidacy, um, which was far different. She announced via a video, I think, what, in April of 2015, And then we did a larger announcement at Roosevelt Island about six weeks later, um, which was very widely attended. Um, Every national media outlet was present. Um, All the cable nets took it live on television the entire time. There was a lot of lead-up discussion um, on panels on television uh, the the days uh, before and, of course, the days after. This is a totally different situation now. You've got multiple candidates who have announced and you will have more candidates to come. So if you are, for example, Kamala Harris, who I want to use as um, the first example here, who I think gave a really strong, did a really strong rollout, um, your goal is to, number one, figure out how to get press, how to get any kind of media attention in this day and age, especially with Trump, given the fact that right now the government is shut down. A lot of the decisions um, in terms of what the networks are airing right now is based around the government being shut down. So if you're Kamala Harris, you are thinking to yourself, how can I do an announcement that gets my message across, that makes an impact, and it also gets covered? So what she did, in my view, was very smart. She announced on Martin Luther King Day, so there's a lot of symbolism there. Um, She also announced, as part of her announcement, that she was going to South Carolina this Friday um, and that she's also going to do her larger announcement in Oakland, California this weekend. So there was kind of, there was a trifecta there. So it was... I'm doing this video, I'm in the race, but I'm going to get another major media hit on Friday, and then I'm going to get another major media hit on Sunday. 
all of that is going to be symbolic to um, and, 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 and will help me get my message across because all of it, you know, South Carolina is a state that clearly Kamala is going to have to play very hard and aggressively in and probably will have to win in order to succeed and, and proceed on through the presidential. And then um, Oakland, of course, is her home. Um, she also, her team was very smart in the first 24 hours um, in terms of the tweets they were putting out. They announced, I think, what, Brian, within 30 minutes, I think they announced that they had raised $1.5 million from all 50 states. Um, that was That's a soundbite that people can remember, and that's something that stands out. So, again, I think the way she handled her rollout was very smart. Elizabeth Warren, she was critiqued by some for announcing over the holidays in between Christmas and New Year's that she was getting into the race, but I think it was actually smart because she was able to get a little bit of news when people were at home, you know, probably a little tired of spending 24-7 with their families, watching TV so they knew that she was in. Um, and then she also um, got it in before Pelosi became the speaker, which, of course, that and then the new Congress coming in, that, of course, drove the news, too. So I think Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren right now are the two who have announced who I think have done the best job in terms of their uh, their rollout strategy. Mr. Fallon, what do you think? In a field this crowded, my number one objective would be to just announce on a day where no one else is announcing. So I actually think that part of the strategy on Elizabeth Warren's part on picking New Year's Eve and also part, part of the strategy on Kamala Harris's part, in addition to the symbolic value, obviously, of announcing on MLK Day was just, hey, we'll take people by surprise. Um, we'll probably have this day to ourselves because it's a holiday. No one's really expecting it. And that is a small thing, but it matters a great deal because in this crowded month when there's so many announcements, you don't want to share the day. And it's not like there's any big meeting where they're all, you know, conspiring so that they don't step on each other. So it actually is a possibility that one of these times we could have a leaked story happen on the same day that somebody's planning a rally. So having your own day, having one day to yourself uh, is no small thing. And that's like, a, that would be a big obsessive consideration on my part if I was working on any of these campaigns. Other than that, I feel like a lot of these rollouts, they, they start to feel similar to each other. They all have sort of um, key elements that are the same. And what um, are those elements? Well, they, everybody announces with a launch video. Uh, for social media, and then you monitor how many views you get, and you brag about how quickly you rack up a million, two million, three million, three million views. Um, everybody seems to be doing Matto at least by the second day. <laughs> um, that seems to be a right passage. That's the right ring to kiss. Uh, Colbert has worked into a few rollouts so far, but Matto has been a pretty consistent element. Everybody seems to be doing Matto within the second or third day after their announcement. No one has yet done it, I think, as the actual site of the announcement itself, but it's like one of the first two or three interviews. I'm sure that's coming. Probably. Yep. <clears throat> Everybody's been doing a press avail within the first 24 mm -hmm. hours, usually the morning after. Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand did hers at a, uh, right outside a diner in Troy, New York, which was a great visual. Kamala Harris did it at Howard University and then went to the basketball game, um, which you know, it was an opportunity to be seen uh, hugging and and uh, getting cheered on by a lot of excited Howard University students. So that was a great site selection for that. But I think they're all trying to send a signal that, unlike some of the criticism that was lodged in 2016 against the then Democratic mm -hmm. nominee, that these people are going to be open, they're going to be accessible, they're w willing to take every question, as they should. Um, 
So I think that media-wise, you know, I'd say that a lot of them have a lot of similar elements to them, and a lot of them have gotten a good baseline of coverage. Um, I think what's going to set out set apart these announcements is the extent to which it generates organic enthusiasm as evidenced by small-dollar donations. So I, I thought it was right. very meaningful that the Harris folks felt so confident about the uh, million and a half dollars they raised in the first 24 hours that they read that information out publicly. That was the first campaign, I think, that announced any figures from its first day of online fundraising. Um, we probably won't hear from anybody else unless they beat that number. So uh, if Bernie or Beto get in the race and they and they put out a and they have a better number than that, they'll probably announce it. And if they don't beat that number, they probably won't announce it. But really, in that first 24 hours, I think that's going to be a good test. Even if we don't hear about it publicly, at least internally for these campaigns, it's going to be a good yardstick for measuring how they're doing in terms of organic enthusiasm that they start out with. And by, I just want to make a point to what uh, Fallon just said. I think that, in my view, the way Kamala Harris's campaign rolled out her announcement, that 24-hour period, starting with the video, um, going to the media availability at Howard. Also, by the way, Lily Adams tweeted out a really great photo of Kamala eating, a, I think, a cheese and sausage biscuit at Penn Station before she was coming back here, which, of course, really personalizes um, the, the candidate and really gives you a glimpse behind the scene of, of the inner workings and it's sort of, you know, the, the, the journey back to Washington, D.C. And then, of course, Howard University, where she had a very, um, you know, robust scrum, as we call it. A lot of reporters came to do a media veil with her and then uh, releasing little tidbits throughout the day on how much money she had raised, um, you know, the number of hits uh, that were on her website, et cetera. I think that is the rollout so far to beat. And I think if you're Beto O'Rourke, if you're Cory Booker, whomever, Joe Biden, whomever else is coming down the pike, I think that 24-hour period and the way her campaign really messaged um, her rollout is going to be the one to beat. Yeah, the, the only thing I'd add to all of that is do no harm, right? I mean, this is your first chance to introduce yourself to the Democratic uh, electorate, and to, the, to the general public. Most people don't know who all these folks are, with the exception of Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, who have much higher name ID, even though Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and Gillibrand are superstars within the party, a lot of people don't know who they are, right? Mm -hmm. So this is their first opportunity to introduce themselves to the public. You don't want to you don't want to create a gaffe uh, or an unforced error, right? And I thought that for most of, if not all of, the announcements that I've seen. Everyone has done a pretty good job of just sort of avoiding making an error. They've right? been clean. They've been clean. Yeah. And you don't ever want to, you know, and I can remember, the, uh, you know, rollouts in the past where there's been mistakes. And, you know, f you know, there was, remember back in 1980, Ted Kennedy couldn't answer why he wanted to run for president, right? So there, there's a history of people not doing a good job there. I think all of them so far have done a, a good job of not creating any errors and um, and uh, getting pretty clean uh, announcements. The other thing to Brian's point about sort of owning the day, I think that that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I, I know there were some people criticizing Elizabeth Warren for when she did it, but at the same time, I think you've got to announce when you want to announce, right? I mean, in this media environment with Donald Trump and the way he can kind of control the media, you know, sort of the direction of stories and, 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 and coverage, 
trying to game plan out three weeks in advance where we're going to go this day and blah, blah. I feel like that is a little bit hard. I think you have to, and trying to sort of game plan out when other people are going to go. I think you've got to pick the day you want to go and you got to go. And I do think, I think Warren uh, did that. You know, she had a, uh, I felt like the, the rest of the week was pretty good uh, in terms of her trips to Iowa. I think Gillibrand had an interesting rollout doing it on Colbert. Uh, I hadn't seen, I don't think, I think that's the first time a candidate had done that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I think all of them are trying to figure out what's going to, ha- what, what's going to happen is it's going to force all, of, you know, the 20 other people who are thinking about running. How do we create a unique moment or, you know, ourselves when, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, you know, the ways in which these current candidates have announced, you know, they're taking those options and moments away so that's right and I think something going back to the Elizabeth Warren announcement which was so smart I mean think about this she basically had a week of owning the market of the only announced presidential candidate who was really a tier one announced presidential candidate she was in Iowa I did a couple hits on MSNBC you guys probably did too where there was a split screen of Elizabeth Warren in Iowa and whatever was happening on the floor with leader Pelosi being uh, sworn in as speaker or with you know, whatever the machinations were happening happening behind the scenes on Capitol Hill or at the Trump White House. Elizabeth Warren was in every single show on most cable networks every hour. And she owned that market because she was only she was the only tier one announced candidate in the race. And I think secondly, going back to the point that you just made about really ratcheting up the um, intensity and the um, pressure for future candidates, especially tier one candidates, Um, in terms of how they're going to do their announcement, you are going to have to find some sort of unique strategy. I think if you're Beto O'Rourke, who we all know likes to do social media, you know, videos and Instagram stories and Facebook lives and whatnot, I mean, something, you know, incorporating some sort of social media element that is akin to what he's been doing so far, I think would be smart. I think if you're Joe Biden, you want to probably get back to your roots and do something in Scranton. And maybe you don't do a video, but instead maybe you do do a big rally, depending on when you get in. So it's just going to be fascinating to see how this process plays out. And finally, the great thing about the rollouts now is that there's no formula that you have to follow, right? You can kind of do your own thing. You can be creative. To Brian's point, you want to be clean. To your point, Doug, you don't want to screw up. Um, You don't want to make any, any sort of unforced errors that could define your campaign moving forward. Um, but we have not seen that yet so far, and it's just interesting to see the way these guys announce. An added word about Elizabeth Warren. I think you're totally right, Adrian. She made uh, really smart use of that week or 10 days that she had the field to herself, pretty much. And I think that one of the things that you look for in these rollouts is this is a point, messaging-wise, where the candidates pivot. They're done being coy. They're done. They're done talking about things as a hypothetical now they're in and so almost from day one they start to deliver some version of what will become their stump speech the diagnosis of the problem as they see it why they think they're uniquely qualified to offer solutions and so as a measure of what the candidates are going to sound like for the next 18 months these rollouts matter in that way too (coughs) with elizabeth warren i think she's got one of the crisp most crisp most succinct diagnoses of the situation before us of anybody in the field 
And it's not something that she's just sort of stumbled upon or focus group for the purposes of running for president. It's pretty much her shtick. It's who, it's who she's been for yeah, which, years. Which has, the right. added, which has the added benefit for her of coming across as authentic and it rings true. And no one can say that it's something that she's, you know, poll tested. Uh, it's authentically her. But it tends to cut through in a way that you can't say for every candidate in the race. So I think that that's come through in the first week or so that she had the field to herself. The other thing I think that she's done is she's sort of emerged early on as a bit of a pace setter in terms of introducing topics into the conversation that other candidates have to react to. And I think of, in particular, when she went on Maddow, we're talking about Rachel Maddow as a rite of passage for all these candidates. She went on Maddow and she basically said, if you're going to be a self-funder or if you're going to accept the uh, support of super PACs, that should be disqualifying. And uh, the voters, I don't think, in the Democratic primary should reward that. She also talked about just billionaires in general running, right? Right. Yeah, she basically so. said, like, it was basically, she didn't name names, but this was before <laughs> Tom Steyer announced he wasn't going to get into the race, and she was basically throwing elbows uh, at, at Steyer and at Bloomberg before, they, before either of them made a decision. Um, but it also has repercussions in terms of candidates that are thinking of having a super PAC. And I'm sure what we're going to hear from all the candidates is that none of them want the support of a super PAC, but the reality is you can either yes, tell your do. donors to stand down or not. And I suspect that we're going to see some candidates and that are top-tier candidates that are sort of coyly welcoming, you know, the support of super PACs. And Elizabeth Warren's basically putting them on notice that she intends to make that a campaign issue. And by the way, I'm really glad that you raised this billionaire um, point that Elizabeth Warren has also raised, because I don't know if you guys saw the Politico story that ran a couple days after. I think maybe it ran last week, or it ran within the last 10 days or so, which essentially was clearly from Bloomberg's team. Um, how How is a billionaire going to run in a sort of non-billionaire-oriented primary? And it really played up all the work he's done with every town and on climate change and a lot of the progressive organizations that he's backed. But to me, that was a, I mean, I have no idea if this was a strategically placed story by his team. I bet it was. Um, and it was sort of a, um, it was sort of a, a pushback, a gentle pushback to any sort of notion that Mike Bloomberg as a billionaire could not run an effective campaign in a Democratic primary. It's very interesting. Yeah, to that point, and, um, uh, and then we'll move on. Uh, the other thing that I noticed with a number of these rollouts is the candidates sort of address their vulnerabilities on the front end, right? And some of them even apologize for past statements that they made, which I think is smart to get it out of the way now so it's not something that they're just discussing later on. For example, Senator Gillibrand, when she was on Rachel Maddow, very tough interview, I think. I give Maddow a lot of credit for how you know she didn't avoid the tough issues, but uh, talk to Senator Gillibrand about her past statements on immigration and her uh, record on guns, for example, right? right? These are vulnerabilities we all know that, th- that the senator has. And, she, and, she, and, and I'm sure this is something that her team actually wanted to probably address. They knew that they would probably get them on, they would, they would get these questions on Maddow. We also saw Tulsi Gabbard uh, address some previous anti-gay statements that she made. Uh, you know, I believe Senator Harris had to address some uh, positions that she had on uh, as a prosecutor in uh, in California. Criminal justice. Right. Criminal justice issues. So I just I, it just was interesting to me that they use these opportunities to sort of address their vulnerabilities on the front end 
and not shy away from them in the hope that these things don't linger down the road. It's really smart. And in a, a world, of, a political world where oftentimes candidates don't always do that, um, I think you're seeing this new uh, frontward facing, you know, we've, we've, got to, we've got to address these problems head on. And what better place to do it, frankly, than Rachel Maddow? Um, because you're getting it out there in the open. Um, you're on with a, I wouldn't say a sympathetic host, because Rachel is one of trusted the toughest. Trusted host. Trusted host. She's one of the toughest in the business. But she is te- she is she is uh, to be trusted, and she is trusted. And you know that you're going to get a fair shake from her. You know that she's going to not come in with a really attack dog mentality in terms of how she's going to approach these questions. But she's going to have a very thoughtful way of approaching them, and give you the most importantly, give you the time to fully address these questions. So I think it's really smart. And I think if also if you're these candidates, knowing your vulnerabilities and hitting them head on, you're hoping that you can sort of nip those in the bud. And then move forward. I would even say that, you know, if if you're a candidate that's hanging back right now, that might be looking at getting into the race maybe in February or March, I would observe, you know, what's happened at the announcement so far. For instance, how Gillibrand was asked head on by by Rachel Maddow about all those past positions that she took as an upstate congresswoman. And I'd say, hey, maybe I should start doing some strategically chosen interviews now in this testing of the waters phase to answer answer some of those questions so I have a, a more uncluttered rollout when I do actually take the jump and announce. Um, our old boss, Jen Palmieri, used to have a phrase called, clear out the underbrush. <laughs> um, and so... In, and you did see Joe Biden sort of do that this week. He made an appearance at uh, Al Sharpton's National a- Action Network breakfast on MLK Day. And he took the opportunity in front of that, obviously, largely African-American audience to basically say that maybe everything in my record uh, in terms of my involvement in the crime bill wasn't perfect. I think he's going to have to say a lot more than that. Yes, but he it is. Was a, it, was a, it was an acknowledgment in advance that that is an issue that is going to have to where he's going to have to show some remorse. Um, so to candidates that are still waiting or planning their announcements for later on in the calendar, um, now is as good a time as any to start addressing those issues because you're going to have to litigate them when the time comes and uh, trying to soften the ground for it in this period before you formally announce might be an even better strategy than waiting till the till rollout day. Okay, team. Good job on the art of the rollout. On our next episode, we reveal our Democratic primary Power 5 rankings. Till then, for Adrian Elrod, I'm Doug Thornell. This has been The Electables. Catch you next time.